0: Has the sports drink industry convinced people to drink even when they're not thirsty? Over the past three decades, a potentially fatal condition caused by overdrinking during extended exercise has struck endurance athletes worldwide. One of the world's leading experts on athlete hydration thinks a lot of that has to do with the sports drink industry's modern marketing tactics. So talk about those tactics and what you can do to keep from getting waterlogged on this edition of Kinetic Connections. Hello and welcome to Kinetic Connections, a podcast from Human Kinetics, the premier publisher for sports and fitness. My name is Maury Williamson, Marketing and Publicity Manager at Human Kinetics. On this edition, we welcome internationally recognized human performance expert, Dr. Tim Noakes, the Discovery Health Professor of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Dr. Noakes is the author of the new book, Waterlogged, The Serious Problem of Overhydration in Endurance Sports. His groundbreaking work provides overwhelming evidence countering the message that high levels of hydration are needed for even modestly taxing exertion in training and competition. Dr. Noakes, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Maury.
0: Well, writing a book of this nature, you obviously have quite a passion for the topic. Can you tell us a little about your inspiration for writing Waterlogged and how you became so interested in the area of athlete hydration?
1: Well, it all began 31 years ago when a lady wrote to me from Johannesburg in South Africa and told me that she had recently run the Comrades Marathon, and she had developed an unusual complication. During the race, she had become confused. Her husband had taken her to the finish, where she'd been seen by the race doctors who decided that she was dehydrated and gave her two liters of intravenous fluids. This didn't make her feel any better. In fact, she felt worse. And so her husband said, well, i better take you to the nearest hospital. He drove her to the hospital, and on the way, she had an epileptic seizure, and she went unconscious. And she was unconscious and near death for four days. And fortunately, she recovered. And when she wrote to me, she said, my blood sodium concentration was very low at the end of the race. What possibly could have happened? And she was then the first case in the entire world of this condition. And I felt it was my responsibility to try and work out what had happened, which I did. By 1985, we wrote our first paper, which included four cases, which were very similar to her own, and we concluded that all these athletes had overdrunk during the exercise. And therefore, we concluded that if they didn't drink so much, they'd be fine, and they wouldn't get the condition. And in fact, the most competitive athlete in the group did exactly that, and she went back and completed the Hawaiian Ironman without any problems. But it took us another four years before we ultimately proved that this was the case. So we hospitalized eight patients who'd collapsed also after the Comrade's Marathon with this condition, and we showed that all of them were overhydrated by between 1 and 6 liters of fluid and so we absolutely proved by 1991 that this condition was purely due to overdrinking and that sodium losses in sweat and urine had absolutely nothing to do with the condition so we had established that by 1991 and we assumed that the condition would just disappear because we knew what there was the cause but sadly that wasn't what happened and in fact the whole condition became epidemic thereafter across the world the number of cases continue to rise for the next 10, 15 years.
0: Interesting. And we'll touch on that uh, condition here in a little bit, but uh, let's talk about a few other things first. You say one of the most common misconceptions about drinking during athletics, and we hear that this a lot, is the idea that by the time you feel thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Why is this belief so problematic in your mind, and why should athletes be worried about it?
1: Well, the problem was that was an, a mantra generated by the industry, and it, it has no biological basis. Humans drink in response to thirst, and they get thirsty as they lose water and the blood sodium concentration rises. And every creature on earth has exactly that same control mechanism. And we don't need to drink ahead of that thirst. We just respond once you get thirsty, that's your brain telling you that you've lost enough fluid for you to require its replacement. Drinking ahead of thirst we've actually proven in a number of studies that actually impairs your performance. So so in contrast that people think that drinking to stay ahead of thirst, improves performance, it seriously impacts on performance and impairs performance. So there are two reasons. Firstly, it's not biologically driven. It's purely driven by industry. And secondly, it actually impairs your performance. So most clever runners will soon learn that drinking ahead of thirst impairs their performance.
0: Very interesting. And uh, let's talk a little bit more about the industry. In the book, you talk a lot about how the sports drink industry markets its products. And here in the United States, we see that marketing in action constantly with so many nationally broadcast sporting events. What are your thoughts on the way the sports drink industry presents itself to athletes?
1: Well, I think it peaked in 1996 when the American College of Sports Medicine produced guidelines which said you had to drink as much as tolerable during exercise. Unfortunately, I believe that the scientists who assisted in producing those guidelines had been influenced by industry and I don't think were utterly objective. And the consequence of that was that the Sports Science Institute of the Sports Drink Industry in the United States produced guidelines which said, you see, the American College supports us. You must drink ahead of thirst, and you must drink as much as tolerable during exercise. And that then became the mantra that was marketed. And that was tragically wrong, because as a consequence of that, there were deaths, because people followed that advice, and they drank too much, and as a consequence, they died. And I dedicated the book to Dr. Cynthia Lecero who did exactly that. She ran the Boston Marathon in 2002. She drank as much as she could tolerate, and unfortunately, that was too much for her. And as a consequence, she died on the evening of that race in 2002.
0: Now, the the condition you talked about earlier, exercise-induced hyponatremia, otherwise known as EAH. Can you tell us a little more about the dangers of EAH and what people should be looking for if they think they have it?
1: The problem with EAH is that you're not aware that you're over-drinking, so people will start running, and for some people they're at risk because they secrete a hormone, antidiuretic hormone, which reduces kidney loss of water to essentially nothing. So a person can be over-drinking and not passing urine, so they would think, gee, I'm dehydrated, I must continue to drink, according to the theory that dehydration is bad for you. And what happened to athletes like Cynthia Luchero is that they encourage to drink at about 40 ounces per hour. They do that. But unfortunately, they're only losing about half that amount in sweat and urine every hour. So every hour that they run, they're accumulating 20 ounces of water in the body because they're secreting this hormone, antidiuretic hormone, and so they're not excreting the excess. And if you keep that up for five hours, then you've accumulated enough extra water for your body to start swelling, and most tissues are fine. They can swell. They'll impair your performance and you won't feel well, but they won't kill you. But the one organ that cannot swell is the brain because as the brain swells, the pressure rises inside the brain because it can't swell beyond the confines of the skull. And as a consequence, ultimately the pressure inside the brain rises, and that reduces blood flow to certain critical parts of the brain and particularly the breathing centers and the cardiovascular centers. So what happens ultimately is that when you've drunk enough and your brain is swollen enough and the pressure has risen far enough, you stop breathing, and that's fatal. We can't help you once that happens. So the problem with hyponatremia is it's overdrinking, it's retention of water, brain swelling, leading to unconsciousness, epileptic seizures, and ultimately brain death as you stop breathing.
0: And can you talk a little bit about how EHH differs from dehydration, the symptoms differ? Has there been a lot of confusion between the way the two are treated?
1: There's been a massive confusion about this. And the reason, in my view, was because industry wanted to give the idea that anyone who collapses post-exercise hasn't drunk enough. So we got taught that there were a series of heat illnesses which were caused by dehydration, supposedly. And that's utterly bogus. There's no evidence whatsoever that dehydration causes any heat illness. The only thing that dehydration causes is thirst. And so an athlete who loses more water than his body wants him to lose gets thirsty and he should be drinking. And he drinks and that reverses the thirst and it reverses the dehydration and there's no further complications. The remarkable thing is that if you ask athletes at the finish of races if they're thirsty, they aren't. So by conclusion, they're not dehydrated, and that's where the problem arose. So we had athletes finishing races, dropping their blood pressure because they stop running and they start walking, and that's a very common phenomenon, which has absolutely nothing to do with dehydration. It has absolutely nothing to do with being hot. It's purely that they can't regulate their blood pressure, and they constitute about 85% of all collapses after marathon and ultramarathon marathon and triathlon races. And we showed already in 1994, all you have to do with those people is lift their legs up. That helps stabilize their circulation, and they're absolutely normal. You don't need to do anything else. So the vast majority of people who collapse after exercise purely have a problem with regulating their blood pressure. And if you can get them to lie down and lift their legs up, they will be completely cured. Now what happened was that people don't understand that, they see these people collapse, and they say, oh, they've got a low blood pressure, their heart's not working properly because they're dehydrated, give them fluid, and that can be catastrophic. Because if those people have overdrunk and already have hyponatremia, the extra liter or two can put them into a fatal hyponatremia. And that's exactly what happens if you confuse dehydration with overhydration.
0: You also mention in the book that athletes are often told that they lack biological controls to ensure that they ingest enough salt. Do you think they really are at risk of developing a syndrome of salt deficiency?
1: The syndrome of salt deficiency has never been described in a healthy human eating a normal diet. And the only way you can produce it, as I describe in the book, and this was done in Oxford in the 1930s by Dr. McKent, he took a group of students and his wife did all the cooking for them, and she made sure there was absolutely no salt in their diet. And then they had to sit in a hot area for two to three hours a day to sweat a lot. And after about six or seven days of taking no salt in their diet, they became sodium deficient. But that's how difficult it is. The reality is that we are eating so much salt in our diets that the salt that we're losing in our sweat and our urine is the excess we ingested the previous day that the body's trying to get rid of. And where the industry has gone wrong and where athletes have been misled is that if they have a salty sweat so called, that's because they've got a massive intake of salt. And you're not going to become salt deficient if you have a lot of salt in your sweat. That is the opposite. When you don't have any salt in your urine and your sweat, then you're at risk of developing sodium deficiency. But that only occurs if you're eating about one to two grams of salt per day, which is essentially impossible for a person living in North America. We've studied the very best runners in Kenya, and they train very, very hard. And their total sodium intake every day is three grams which is about a third of what the average American runner is ingesting. And they are absolutely not sodium deficient. So the body has this incredible capacity to conserve sodium right down to an intake of one to two grams. You can probably run a couple of hours a day and still be in sodium balance, even if your intake is only two grams per day.
0: Now, someone with a, a great deal of experience as an endurance athlete, with this being a lifelong passion of yours, I, I'm just interested to know what your experience has been like. You've completed over 70 marathons and ultramarathons. You know, have you ever had any problems with hydration or overhydration during your time running?
1: No. And, and you know, one of the reasons why I could write this book was I started running in 1969 when we were told not to drink during exercise. And the, the paradox, as I describe in the book, is that the first marathons I ran, we were not allowed to drink very much. And so I said, but this is all wrong. You've got to allow us to drink more. And so we started the crusade, and I wrote the first articles I ever wrote in the late press and in in scientific publications said you must allow runners to drink more during marathon races. And by 1981, just before I received that letter, that very first letter describing hyponatremia, I actually wrote an article saying you must drink as much as you possibly can during marathons, but when I studied myself and I was studied frequently during those races, I drank very sparingly. I can remember running the 90-kilometer Comrades Marathon. I probably had five drinks, and each of them was probably 250 mL. So I probably drank about two liters, uh, which is a couple of ounces, during during a -a six-and-a-half-hour race and felt no worse for the wear as a consequence. So I was always a reluctant drinker, but that's essentially what we did. That was the way we ran in those days, and we didn't have great numbers of problems in the runners that were running in those days. The big difference, of course, was in those days we really trained very hard, and most of the people running really trained exceptionally hard. Since the 1970s, when marathon running became very popular in the big city marathons, people trained so much less, and they're also entitled, and they believe that the race organizers owe them a good race. We never, we never had that attitude. We thought that if you did poorly in a race, it was your fault. You didn't train hard enough. We didn't go and say, oh, but you didn't provide us with enough fluid, and that's why we ran poorly. So there has been a change in the culture of running in the past 30 years, and, and that hasn't helped. It hasn't helped the organizers because now they've been pressurized to provide more and more fluid because, in a sense, that's what the athletes have been asking for.
0: So in your mind, ultimately, do you think endurance athletes should be drinking water or sports drinks, or does it really matter as long as they kind of follow the guidelines you set forth and waterlogged?
1: I don't think it really matters. It's clear that if you are not carbohydrate-adapted, in other words, you are a person eating what we call a paleo diet or a low-carbohydrate, low high-fat diet, it's very clear that those athletes need very, very little carbohydrate during races and so water is perfect for them, and in fact, milk might even be even better. For those athletes who train on a high-carbohydrate diet, they unfortunately do run out of carbohydrates during marathon and ultramarathon races, so they have to stuff themselves with carbohydrates during races, and as you can hear my biases, I don't think that's ideal. I think that's not the best way to go, but for as long as athletes believe they must take lots of carbohydrates in their diet, again, which I'm not sure is correct, they definitely have to take lots of carbohydrate during races, and in those circumstances, then a sports drink would be better because it has more carbohydrate in it. But I think we will come to the stage where athletes will realize that they actually don't need as much carbohydrate during races as we used to think. And as I described in my book, Law of Running, which is also published by Human Kinetics, I've had a complete rethink, and I'm not so convinced that you need to take so much carbohydrate during races.
0: Now, talking about a change in the culture, something I thought was really interesting in the book, you talk about the role the encouragement of frequent drinking during marathons and other endurance sports has had on world record performances. How do those performances compare to the time before drinking was pushed so much?
1: Well, if you look at the world records, and I think this occurs in the first chapter, this is described in the first chapter of the book, they actually peaked, the rate of progress in marathon records peaked in about the 1960s and the 1970s and has been slowing ever since. So the time when they weren't drinking actually was a period where the records were accelerating most rapidly. But I don't think you can say that's cause and effect. I think what happened was in the the 50s and the 60s, we got a lot of really good runners for the first time running, focusing on the marathon. And thereafter, of course, lots of money has come into the marathon and it's attracted even better runners. So you would have expected the world records to improve dramatically in the 80s and the 90s and more recently as the Kenyans have started to dominate, a nation which didn't run marathons in the 60s. But that actually hasn't really happened. So I think it's purely a sociological thing that by the 60s and the 70s, humans were approaching the limits of their ability in the marathon. And although, of course, the records have improved dramatically, passed by 10 or 15 minutes since then, the rate of progress has actually slowed down. And that tells us that we are reaching the limits of our abilities. So the short answer is that performances didn't improve dramatically in the 70s and 80s when runners started drinking more. And and the reason is very simple. The best athletes drink very little when they run marathons. So, mm-hmm. so the only people who really bought into this lots of drinking during marathon races were the people who were running four to five hours and six hours in the marathon. And in fact, one of the studies which we review in the, in the book, because we published it recently, Showed that in a in a marathon, a large number of runners running a marathon in France, those who ran the slowest lost the least weight, and those who ran the fastest lost the most weight, and that is traditionally the case. The best runners run the fastest and drink the least.
0: Now, uh, another change in the culture you talk about in the book, you mentioned how in 1981, frequent drinking stations were introduced at marathons and ultra marathons. How has that changed the amount of medical care needed to treat runners at those races over the? past 30 years since those drinking stations were introduced so heavily
1: that's a great question because i was actually medical director of a couple of races in cape town in 1970s and we were so laid back that we would run the race and then at the finish you'd amble over to the medical tent and you'd see three or four athletes who would got some minor complaint, and that was how it was and then after the introduction of more frequent seconding stations we suddenly saw this dramatic increase in the number of casualties. Now, whether it's because they were less well-prepared, these athletes, or because they were overdrinking, I don't know. But certainly, the addition of frequent drinking in these marathons, it didn't do what we thought it would do. It didn't make the fewer athletes to present after the race with problems. It was definitely associated with a massive increase. So I can only conclude that far from reducing the problems... The frequent seconding stations, I think, probably contributed to increasing the problem.
0: Now, uh, here in North America, we're we're going to be entering the summer months when it's going to get really hot. Heat stroke becomes a bigger and bigger problem. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between dehydration and heat stroke? A lot of people say that the only way to prevent heat stroke during exercise is to drink plenty of fluids. Where do you stand on that?
1: Yeah, that unfortunately is untrue. You know that there have only been five or six reported cases of heat stroke in marathon runners in the entire scientific literature, and those cases are reported in the book. In contrast, I was able to trace about 2,000 cases of heat stroke in all activities, including military and other activities, and, for example, the mines and so on. And a key observation is that most people who develop heat stroke develop it within 30 minutes or an hour of starting exercise. And therefore, dehydration cannot be a factor because you can't become significantly dehydrated in only an hour's exercise. And I also describe an epiphany moment in my own life when I was a medical doctor at a cross-country race in Cape Town, the National Championship, and I suddenly had to treat four cases of heat stroke in the men's race. And I thought, but hold on, this race is only 12 kilometers. It's only six miles. How can we have four cases of heat stroke in a race that's only six miles long? can't be dehydration. And then I realized that it's nothing to do with dehydration. It's something to do with how fast these athletes were running. And that has been confirmed that the risk of heat stroke is really only present in very fast races of short distances. Once you get longer distance races, you're running so slowly, relatively, that your risk of developing heat stroke is very low, and the incidence then becomes very low. People who develop heat stroke in marathons and ultra-marathons have something else going wrong with them at the same time. I believe they have a genetic predisposition in their muscles, which makes them generate far too much heat. And in addition, they probably have something else. For example, maybe they took some drugs or perhaps they had an intercurrent infection. So we always look for at least three factors when we see a patient with heat stroke. We look for drugs, we look for an intercurrent infection, and we look for a genetic disorder. For example, the last patient we treated, we took 11 hours to cool this athlete. And what is more, he was the last athlete to finish the ultramarathon. So he was the slowest runner in the race. He hadn't run fast, and it took us 11 hours to cool him. And that's because something was going wrong in his body, and he was generating enormous amounts of heat. And there are well-described medical conditions in which that can occur. I think that most cases of heat studies are exactly that. They're a genetic disorder that we don't fully understand, and it's activated by exercise plus one or two other into current condition, so the idea that we could just say dehydration causes heat stroke is completely wrong and for those people who are at risk of getting heat stroke they can drink as much as they like it's not going to stop the problem because the dehydration is not the direct cause of the heat stroke
0: well the book is filled with all sorts of interesting studies stories tidbits if there's one thing you want people to take from reading Waterlog, dr noakes what would it be
1: Listen to your body. That's what we learned when I started running in the 1970s, and we, we didn't know why. What we do know now is that humans evolved to run long distances in arid, hot conditions in Southern Africa, and that's how humans became humans, and that is our biological past, and we still show that, and so the best athletes are those athletes who show the, our evolutionary past. We studied Haile Gebrselassie when he set the world record, and he lost 10% of his body weight. He lost 5 kilograms, or just over 10 pounds, body weight, and he sped up at the finish. So his severe levels of dehydration, the only effect they had on him was to make him run faster at the finish, probably because he was carrying less weight. So people need to know that we are incredibly robust as a species. We survived because we could run in the heat. And that is what is our biological inheritance. And we don't need to be told how much to drink, when to drink, and what to drink. You just listen to your body, and it will tell you exactly what to do.
0: Well, Waterlogged is a book that's truly going to change the way people look at hydration. Dr. Noakes, we thank you so much for your time, and uh, we really appreciate you joining us on Kinetic Connections.
1: Thank you very much for having me on this wonderful
0: show. Thank you, Maury. That was Dr. Tim Noakes, author of Waterlogged, The Serious Problem of Overhydration in Endurance Sports. You can now find Waterlogged in bookstores everywhere or by visiting our website at humankinetics.com. On our website, you can also read excerpts from the book and learn more about Tim Noakes. We would appreciate your feedback about Kinetic Connections. If you have questions or comments, please email us at publicity at hkusa.com. That's publicity at hkusa.com. I'm Maury Williamson, Marketing and Publicity Manager at Human Kinetics. Our engineer was Roger Francisco, and we also had production help from Amy Rose. We appreciate you joining us for this edition of Kinetic Connection.